Welcome back to Arab American Psycho. My name is Noor, and I am beyond excited for this week's guest. She's a Palestinian activist, international lawyer, co-host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Palestinian Pod, or The Palestine Pod, sorry, not me making it about myself. You may know her on Instagram by her handle, Gazan Girl. Welcome to the show, Laura E. Thank you so much, Noor. Thanks for having me. Uh, did you, I, I, I definitely always want to call your show the Palestinian podcast. I don't know why. I just feel like it's Because I think there is a Palestinian podcast. But you're the Palestinian <laughs> pod. We're the Palestine pod. You know, before we started the podcast, we went through and searched every single Palestine podcast that existed and tried to find a name that wasn't already taken. So I think the Palestinian podcast is a podcast. It's not our podcast. So, Well, I don't know about that podcast. So my apologies to the Palestinian. <laughs> Maybe I will look into that. But, I think it is. Um, I don't quote me, but yeah, we're the Palestine pod. It's, you know, yes. it's a little more hip and. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> oh, I mean, I will say though, it is like a podcast, like the first episode I listened to, I didn't really know what to expect. And your co-host is a comedian, I believe. Yeah. Yes. I don't yeah. think we knew what to expect either. I mean, we were just, this was very, this was created on a whim. I mean, th this, the whole thing came together because I had been following Michael for a few months and and I really liked his content and I loved just how unequivocal he was and just how completely, you know, unabashed he was about his anti-Zionist position as a Jewish American. And I just tagged him in a story and I said, start a podcast with me. And he wrote back, okay. <laughs> so that's Wait, how this, that's how it started. <laughs> that's genuinely incredible. And also, wait, are you guys based in the same place? No, we've never no. met in real life. Oh my God. So you guys are like the ultimate internet yeah, yeah, yeah. Internet success story. Internet friends Absolutely. for sure. Uh, and I think, you know, he was following me as well and he saw what I was doing. And and uh, yeah, we both, you know, had respect for each other's um, perspective and content and and it worked. And I think, you know, the first episode for us was just trying to feel it out and see where, where are we going to go with this? And I think we really quickly found our stride and uh, and found the direction that we wanted to take the the show in. And I mean, like I said, it's it's one of my favorite shows, not only because there is this element of like humor throughout it all. And you guys definitely, I think, try to just keep it very much so like relevant, but also, you know, not make it like a huge bummer, because let's be honest, it's a huge bummer. Everything that's happening is a yeah. huge fucking bummer. So it's hard to not make it that. But also just both of you have such interesting like perspectives and, and interesting like kind of I feel like experiences that play such a big role in the podcast itself and also the dynamic is it's a really, I don't know, it's very enjoyable. And I always feel like I'm learning something and I fucking love anytime I feel like I'm learning anything. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, yeah. I'm enjoying myself and I'm learning. This is, this is ideal. What more could I ask for? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, you have understood exactly what we're going for, which is it's very content heavy when you actually look at like the underlying statistics and the, you know, the, the facts that we're referring to, the claims that we are making, which we support with our full bibliographies that we upload online. Um, but also the way that we deliver the information, we try to do it in a way that's lighthearted and, you know, makes people want to come back week after week. Um, yeah. And like you said, the situation is absolutely depressing and, yeah. and, you know, completely devastating on any given day. And so for us, we just try to find the humor in the darkness. And and a lot of the times that just comes from the absurdity of Zionism and what Zionism claims that it is as 
compared to what it actually is and what it's actually done. You know, they claim to be a liberation movement, but it's actually responsible for creating an apartheid state and promoting a settler colonial ideology. So the question is liberation for who and at whose expense, right? And so, you know, we we try to poke holes um, or, you know, we try to identify the sort of logical fallacies that are uh, latent in the Zionist ideology. And you don't have to look very far. I mean, they're all over the place. And that's what we try to make fun of. Um, that's kind of, you know, Michael <laughs> Michael always says that the Palestine pot is just basically a rebuttal to Zionism. Every episode is just, you know, another extension of our case, you know, in the court of public opinion about whether or not this is a legitimate ideology. And the fact of the matter is it's not. Oh, no. I mean, and and that's, I guess, the most comical, if like you said, finding humor in the darkness. But it is a little hilarious that people think that they have like a leg to stand on when defending Zionism. Because it's like, I mean, just objectively speaking, it's super racist, discriminatory, all of these horrible things that I think globally we are all on the same page on. Like, this sucks. We don't like this. We don't, we're not doing this. But it's really interesting the way they find these loopholes, which again, me looking at them from my perspective, it's like, this is not a defense. Like your defense sucks, like get a better fucking defense. And yet people continue to indulge these arguments and, you know, support Zionism. And I, I will never not be baffled by it because it's truly baffling and also slightly hilarious. Cause it's like, this is so fucking ridiculous. How can anyone support or believe in this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think you have to completely ignore what's happening to the indigenous Palestinian population if you want to continue to believe in this ideology. You either ignore what's happening completely or you know what's happening and you just don't care. Um, You know, there's a a couple of options there. But I always say we have to judge Zionism by its consequences, by what it's actually done. I mean, it's really – fine and well to say, oh, this is what Zionism means to me. And for me, it means this and, you know, whatever. And to make all sorts of whimsical statements about it. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't really matter what it means to you because we have proof. We know what Zionism has done. And we know that for 73 years, the implementation of the Zionist project in the land of Palestine has led to nothing short of continued ethnic cleansing, land theft of Palestinian land, the expulsions of Palestinians from their homeland, leading to the world's uh, largest refugee population, uh, the Palestinians, right? Um, we know that uh, Zionism has led to the creation of an apartheid state, a recognized apartheid state after the assessment of mountains and mountains of evidence by respected international human rights organizations like Beit Selim and Human Rights Watch. Those reports came out earlier this year. Um, Beit Selim actually referred to it as a regime of Jewish supremacy from the river to the sea. So what we're dealing with is essentially white supremacy that is codified, that is on the books. There's dozens and dozens of legislation um, you know, on the books in Israel that codify segregation and discrimination and that essentially treat people differently depending on which group they belong to. I mean, that is the definition of apartheid. Um, that's what Zionism has done. And that's what Zionism continues to do. Zionism is responsible for uh, what's happening in Sheikh Jarrah. Zionism is responsible for what's happening in Silwan. Zionism is responsible for what's happening in Beta. Zionism is responsible for essentially making a native uh, population 
stateless refugees and continuing to expel them from their homeland 73 years into the Zionist project and replacing them with settlers from all over the world who have more rights to come live on that land than the natives do to remain on their land. That's what Zionism has done. So we don't really have to entertain these sorts of, you know, conversations about what Zionism means to an individual person, you know, that's like saying, what does white supremacy mean to me? <laughs> it just means that white right. people are having a great time. No, yeah. that's not how this works. Um, you have to be able to open your eyes. And when you do, you know, the information is all there. It's just whether or not you're willing to accept it. You can continue to live in a la-la land and, you know, with your head in the clouds and deny the very real effects of the implementation of the Zionist project, but you're just lying to yourself. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is all you have to do is ask any Palestinian anywhere in the world, you know, the story of their grandparents. That's really all you have to do. Ask them what happened to their grandparents. Ask them why their grandparents are no longer in Palestine. And, you know, the majority of the time they're going to tell you it's either because their grandparents were literally expelled from Palestine by Zionist militias you know, whether it be the 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 Ergun, the, the Haganah, the Stern Gang, what have you. There's, you know, numerous uh, Zionist militias that were carrying out the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948. And then eventually they became the Israeli army, right? So then now, it, 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 it you know, from that point on, it achieves this sort of veneer of legitimacy because it's like organized under the activities of an army as opposed to these militias that are operate, operating outside of, um, you know, an official state apparatus, right? Um Either that's the case, you know, they were expelled, or they uh, simply were outside of Palestine and prevented from ever returning. Um, they lost their, you know, citizenship in any number of weird ways. I mean, there's there's multiple ways that Israel um, tried and succeeded over the years to strip Palestinians of their um, citizenship and connection to Palestine, basically saying that, oh, if you're outside of Palestine for so-and-so, you know, for such amount of time, then uh, you can't come back and you've lost your citizenship. And they continue to do that to this day. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> when when you look at what Israel has done and what it continues to do, it's really actually very simple. What this conflict is about is about ridding the land of Palestine, of Palestinians, and replacing them with foreign settlers. And every single policy that Israel has, um, every single policy that it enacts towards Palestinians is in furtherance of that goal. And I mean, it's, it's so apparent. They they don't, their discretion is very little to none at this point or at any point. And it, I guess that's also one of the reasons why I'm just like, how have we allowed this to continue? But it really ties into what you were saying earlier. It's people just choosing not to care. People are just deciding to completely ignore it and, you know, carry on with their lives. And I think one of the biggest kind of issues that I think is happening right now is that people don't think that there is any point to speaking about Palestine online. Like, what is the point? How will this benefit Palestine? Like, how will this create change? There is a lot of that in conversations that I've had, not with Zionists, with people who are just kind of like, why should I talk about this? Why? What difference is it going to make? And, you know, obviously, from my own experience and from what I've seen online, any form of activism or information about Palestine online is a direct threat to Zionism in Israel because their image is very crucial to this entire regime, this, this apartheid. In, in they are very good at trying to create this illusion of look how democratic we are. You, you see that with 
pinkwashing. You see that with, you know, all of these tactics that they have. And I guess I would ask you, like, what what is your position on? I, I mean, I know the answer to this, but I just want to hear what you have to say. On, yeah. You know, speaking about Palestine online and, and why it's important to speak about Palestine. I mean, we definitely have to speak about Palestine online, because if it didn't matter, then they wouldn't go to the great lengths that they're going to in order to censor us. And the censorship has been completely out of control. Uh, my account has been censored. I've been threatened with deletion for doing things like sharing videos of that march or rally or whatever you want to call it in Jerusalem, where all the, you know, enraged settlers were shouting death to the Arabs and Mm -hmm. were shouting that we're going to bring a second Nakba and whatever. That post was taken down for hate speech. And it's like, well, yeah, it is hate speech. I agree. But also it's important to show it because right. I'm a victim of hate speech. Like Palestinians right. are being victims of hate speech. So we should be able to share when hate speech is happening to us. We're not sharing it to promote its contents. All you have to do is look at what Israel's own government has done uh, in response to social media activism. They are working very closely with Facebook, TikTok. Um, obviously, Facebook owns Instagram as well to delete posts to delete accounts. They've been doing it on Facebook. It's been reported by The Intercept since 2017, perhaps uh, even earlier than that. Uh, in this specific round of uh, of assaults against Gaza and Jerusalem, we saw Newsweek reporting uh, collaboration between Facebook and Israeli officials to discuss online, quote unquote, hate speech. Politico also reported it. So we know that they're working hand in hand. We also know that Facebook hired a former Israeli government official um, to monitor uh, posts and to propose posts and accounts for deletion. And, you know, numerous high profile posts, especially on Facebook, have been deleted. Entire Palestinian news accounts have been deleted. And, you know, in many cases, they're not getting these accounts back. So if it didn't really make a difference, I can guarantee you that they wouldn't spend so much time and resources on trying to contain this beast, which is social media activism. But they are. And so that means that it's working. And, and you know, I mean, the proof is also in, for example, take a look at what's happened in Sheikh Jarrah. Um, the colonial courts were supposed to render a decision on the expulsion of the families. And uh, it's very clearly because of the uproar that, um, that has Absolutely. resulted that they continue to postpone the decision. They postponed it by, you know, a week. They postponed it by a month. They keep postponing it, but the attention is still turned towards Sheikh Jarrah. So uh, it puts them in a little bit of a difficult situation. It's very easy for Israel to um, carry out its ethnic cleansing plans when nobody is really watching. You demolish some Palestinian homes, you expel some Palestinians, you replace them with Jewish settlers. It's the same formula that Israel has applied time and time again. But when the entire world's attention is turned towards, you know, a specific city or a specific village where Palestinian families are are going to be forcibly expelled from their homes, you know, in, in, in what can only be described as a war crime. Well, then the colonial court will say, okay, yeah, uh, we won't take the decision right away. Uh, Yeah, we'll take it a little bit later, hoping that things will die down. And so that's why it's really crucial for people who who think that this doesn't work. Even if you have one follower, if you have two followers, it doesn't matter. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer in each one, teach one. And at the end of the day, you know, everybody has a network. Everybody has people 
who are around them, who they can influence. And, you know, you can do it through social media or you can do it in person, right? But the point is, is that you should be talking about these things. You should be talking about these things because, especially if you're an American, you are involved in this, whether you like it or not, because your tax dollars are going to fund ethnic cleansing and apartheid of Palestinians. Okay, that's a critical thing for your listeners to understand. The U.S. gives Israel $3.8 billion every year, at least. This year, it was like even more than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And Israel is the world's largest recipient of U.S. foreign aid. So that means that we give Israel more money than we give every other country. What does Israel do with all that money? Well, it literally uses that money to uphold the structures of apartheid in the occupied territories, the systems of segregation and discrimination that exist within the 48 territories, and the illegal and immoral siege on Gaza. That's what that money is used to do. Nothing else, right? And so it's really critical for us as Americans to be engaged and involved in this particular issue. This is not just some you know, far away foreign conflict that doesn't really concern us. So we can just sort of turn a blind eye to it because it's far away and they're brown people and it doesn't really matter. No, it's literally our money and everybody knows it. Everybody in Palestine knows it. You know, when when they get hit with those tear gas canisters, they know that they're American. When the F-16s are dropping bombs on Gaza, they know that they're American. And so that should make people say, wait a minute, I have a responsibility to speak out against this because it's it's our money, it's our weapons, um, and it's our diplomatic support, uh, especially of Israel on the world stage and before international organizations, which has completely prevented Israel from being held accountable for any of its crimes under international law. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's one of those things that I think most people are aware of And I know for me, someone who is Palestinian and who lives in America, that's something that's, it makes me sick to my stomach to say the least, because, you know, I have to pay taxes. It's not like I can just be like, you know what? I don't want to pay taxes because I don't like what you're doing with my money. Uh, But yeah, that's, that's illegal. It's exactly (laughs) your taxes, guys. I'm not encouraging anyone to not pay their taxes. It's not never a good time, but specifically when that money is funding military aid for Israel and basically just making sure that they can continue to ethnically cleanse Palestinian people. It's beyond, I think, embarrassing for me as an American. But in fairness, I haven't been proud to be an American for a very long time, maybe since I was a child. So I mean, that's a whole other thing. But I did want to ask you, we're doing a little bit of a reverse. We all know that this is a fucking chaos, chaotic show. So where were you born? And also, what are when? What are your ties to Palestine? I was born in Kuwait, the daughter of Palestinian refugees. Um, there was a significant uh, refugee population in Kuwait in the early late eighties, uh, early nineties, until the Gulf War. And uh, it was during the Gulf War that my family uh, escaped Kuwait because we many Palestinians were being expelled at the time. And we ended up in the U.S. Um, but all four of my grandparents were born in Gaza and are from Palestine for as long as they can remember. Um, my great-grandmother is from Yaffa and her entire lineage is from Yaffa. So my family is really from Yaffa and Gaza originally. Um, I have never unfortunately been to Gaza. I've tried to go once and uh, it was during 
the siege. And so it was impossible for me to enter without a specific permission that I would have had to present to the, you know, Israeli soldier at the Eretz crossing. I tried to go just, you know, on a whim thinking, well, I'm in Palestine. I may as well just try, you know, approach the border and see what happens. And this 18 year old female soldier just stopped me and looked at me like I was absolutely insane for even trying. And I said, well, my, my family still has houses in Gaza. My family still has, I still have, you know, extended family in Gaza. My, um, you know, today my brother-in-law's entire family, his parents and all his brothers and sisters are in Gaza. Um, so we still have family in Gaza, but, uh, my immediate family, my grandparents, uh, and you know, my parents and my siblings are outside of Gaza. And you know, Were that's your the parents Palin- born there. Um, yeah, so they were. My mom was born there on a on a vacation back to Gaza, um, and my father was born there as well. But my mom grew up in Kuwait like her whole life, so she never really lived there. Um, and I think, you know, that's the thing with being Palestinian is that you're everywhere, you know. It's really crazy because our entire culture is defined by being close to family. Like we have such a cult, a culture that is rooted in family and tradition and everybody living close to one another and, you know, your your grandparents living across the street and your cousins living down the road. And that's what Palestine was like before, but for the diaspora people, for the for the Palestinians in exile, we don't really know that reality at all. Uh, you know, ask any Palestinian in exile where their family lives. I mean, I can tell you, I have cousins in Australia, I have cousins in London, I have cousins in Canada, I have people in Kuwait, I have people in Vancouver. I, you know, our families are all over the world, and we just end up in whatever country will take us. Uh, because we're stateless refugees. So we just have to find a place to go. And it's not like we have the luxury to be able to regroup all in one country. Uh, So although that's a very big part of our culture, I I feel like my upbringing wasn't very Palestinian to, you know, in in that sense, because I really only grew up with my, my immediate family, right? And I would see my extended family very rarely. Like I met my grandparents for the first time after we left Kuwait uh, wow. when I was 16 or 17 years old, when I went back to Kuwait. But, um, and we had left when I was like three years old. So I don't really remember, you know? Right. But uh, yeah, it's weird because it, it changes your culture even, you know, you're mm-hmm. this experience with um, settler colonialism and uh, becoming a stateless refugee. It, 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 you know, I always say like Zionism changed you know, completely altered the entire course of my life. Because if it were not for Zionism, I would have grown up in Palestine, just like everybody else. Um, but, you know, for Palestinians in exile, we are from the people who were either expelled or prevented from going back. And so those ties were cut. So we had to try to continue to live our culture and our identity somewhere else a place that we didn't really choose. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, as a child, I couldn't really grasp that concept. I just genuinely thought like, oh, my parents love, they love traveling. They love experiencing new cultures. And they absolutely do love experiencing other cultures, but also they are refugees. And that's, that is just a part of their life. And, and, you know, 
I also thought it was weird. Like, why doesn't everyone else have family that's all over the world? Like, I have family in every continent. Like, you don't have family in it? Like, that's so weird. And I thought that these were, like, normal things that families did and they just decided to move to different places. And then, you know, it wasn't until I was old enough to really understand that these these people live in these countries out of necessity because they have no choice. And, you know, whatever country will accept them is a country that they are going to move to. I mean, my parents, I believe, won a raffle and that is how they moved to America. Like, and my mom got like a scholarship. It was like a combination of, it was like a raffle thing. And then also like her getting a scholarship out of school. So like, it wasn't even just one thing. It was like multiple things working together to get them the ability to move to America. Um, And it really is kind of this weird thing that does absolutely, I think, kind of change our culture in a way. And, and it evolved into something else. But that close family tie that I think a lot of Palestinians who live on the ground experience with having cousins across the street, that's something that I've never experienced either. But I think what my parents tried to do to like supplement that is within our immediate family, we are very close. So we all live very close to each other. We spend a lot of time together. So, and I think in the way that's how they try to keep that culture alive and keep that palace, the, the essence of being a Palestinian alive, which is that we are all very much so a very tight knit community and our families all are very close and involved in one one another's lives. And that is something that I definitely wish that I had growing up, you know, like seeing all these people whose cousins live across the street and stuff. I was like, I want to have a cousin who lives across the street. Like that seems awesome. And I think that it's, it's really, really a weird thing to kind of go through as a Palestinian diaspora, um, what was your experience like with that? Because I, I know you live in Paris, I believe, currently at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I left the U.S. about 10 years ago um, to continue my studies and then also for work. But I mean, I think for me, like the the most unfortunate part of growing up was being deprived of my grandparents, you know. Yeah. Because they're such an essential part of the Palestinian family, you know. Like that's such an essential part of um, not only, you know, not only the family, but your identity and, you know, you're supposed to get all these stories from them and have all these anecdotes and have all these interactions and maybe learn to cook and maybe, you know, hear all about your Sido's life. And, you know, I don't know, right. I I, I can only guess, right. right? Because right. I was totally deprived of it and I had to try to get to know them as an adult, uh, you know, like I said, starting from the age of 17, we'd try to go to Kuwait like once a year and they would never be able to leave because until today they're still stateless refugees. So, I mean, it really, you know, again, Zionism completely ruined their lives. They have not been able to get a passport and they're now both over 80 years old and have been able to get some sort of a residency in Kuwait, but will never be made Kuwaiti nationals ever and they'll never be able to go back to Palestine. And so that's just it. They're just stateless. They don't have passports. They're, you know, on identity, you know, on paper, excuse me, they are just invisible in a way. Right. 
And I think the hardest part for me was being deprived of getting to know them growing up and then having to try to get to know them, you know, as an adult on short, like week long or two week long trips back to Kuwait. And then we'd leave and come back the next year. And, you know, it felt like a very, it it wasn't, I just knew that that's not how it was supposed to be. It was supposed to be different. And, uh, but again, the implementation of the Zionist project completely uprooted, divided, and separated generations of Palestinians. And, you know, the effects of it reverberate and continue to affect Palestinians uh, in exile until today. You know, I always say, like, we are the best case scenario, right, out of this entire mess. Because we do have, you know, if you're able to get a passport, right, you do have more rights than your Palestinian brothers and sisters that are on the ground, you know, but there's still an injustice here, which is that we didn't, we didn't want to leave Palestine. We should still be in Palestine. We have a right to return under international law, which continues to be denied to us every single day that we're alive, that Israel doesn't allow us to go home. And so there is an injustice there that needs to be addressed. And, uh, you know, we had Steve Salida on, uh, Dr. Steve Salida on the podcast, and we were talking about the right of return. And he says, you know, I'd go back. And I told him I would too. And I would also go back. Like, I, I, yeah. I, it's, I think most Palestinians would go back. Even I my think mother, so too. I think I so asked too. Her, I asked her frequently, like, mom, if you can go back to Gaza, would you go back? She was like, yes, absolutely. That's my home. That's, yeah. that is my home. Like, I want to live. She's like, I wish I never. I wish I never had to leave like that. She's like, my feelings on that will never change because that is my home. And, and like you said, I mean, for me, I, I was born in America. I, I considered myself to be American for many years. And I very proudly was like, running around as a child being like, I'm American. I'm American because that's what America does. Makes you feel really fucking proud for no reason. Um, and so I, it wasn't until like, I really had that understanding of, wait a minute, this is all happening and America's very responsible for this. And like, I, I don't know how to feel about that. And there is this like internal conflict that you have as a Palestinian diaspora, because you don't really get to like choose now what's whether or not you want to go back to Palestine. Like that's not an option for anyone, but specifically I know for Americans, it's also very hard, especially if you're from Gaza, trying to enter into Gaza. They're, they're, that's not going to happen. They're not going to let you in. They don't want an American casualty. I mean, they don't give a fuck about you, but they still definitely don't want that because you are American. And so it's not, it's not even to me, like it doesn't feel like a possibility for me to even go to visit at this point. No, because there's an ongoing siege and you'll be stopped unless you have a specific permission from Israel and Israel doesn't grant these permissions just to anybody. There has to be, you know, from a very specific reason for your uh, travel to Gaza from probably a very limited list of options. So, um, yeah, it's really difficult to get into Gaza these days, especially if you're just an American and that's the only nationality that you hold. Uh yeah, I mean, it's not it's not the time it's not the time to try to get in, but I mean, it's funny that you say that you were very proud to be American because I never was, um, in the sense that I always knew that it was a settler colony. My my uncle is a scholar of um, Native American studies in in Kuwait, and from a very young age, you know, because we would talk on the phone. That's all we had at the time. So I would speak to him a lot on the phone when we were in America, and from a very young age. 
he instilled in me this idea that what happened to us is the same thing that our indigenous brothers and sisters went through and continue to go through in the Americas. And, you know, for me that, that marked me from, you know, I was five, six years old and understanding these notions of settler colonialism, you know, at, <laughs> at my age, I mean, to the extent that I could, you know, I understood right. that they stole land. Right. And that that's yeah. wrong. Yeah. Uh, and my, I remember my first dolls were native American, um, and I, I remember, you know, being, I don't know if you had to do this, but we were like assigned roles in class when we were like in first or second grade for Thanksgiving, you get to be a settler, you get to be a native, yep. and then you have yep. like a Thanksgiving lunch. Yes, yes. And I drew settler and I started weeping. I was like, this is, no, I don't want to be a settler. It was horrible. <laughs> I mean, I was like six or seven. I don't even know how old I was. And I remember refusing to participate. I was a very rebellious child, especially when it came to things like justice, you know, and when I felt like there was an injustice being done. Uh, and I said I wouldn't participate. And my teacher said, no, decorate your, you know, cardboard vest anyway. And I went home and there was tears in my eyes. And I remember my mom took a picture with me holding my Native American doll. And I, I posted that recently on Instagram, remembering this incident and you know, just realizing from a young age that, you know, issues of justice and injustice deeply, deeply touched me and affected me. And it changed my entire worldview that I don't think there was ever a moment where I was like, I'm super proud to be a part of this settler colony, you know? I think genuinely where it stemmed this pride that I had, where it came from was I went to school in the States until the second grade. And then I went to school in Malaysia after that elementary school. I started middle school there. And then I went to high school in the Emirates. So I was very much so removed from the US. And I would come back during the summer and I had obviously a great time. I would go to Target, you know, just fucking (laughs) Florida things. Yeah. Go to Target, buy Twizzlers, Starburst, fill my suitcase to bring it back with me. So to me, America was like this place where I was like, oh, that's where I was happy because I was a bratty child who was just like, why did you move me to this country that I've never heard of before mom and dad? Uh, You know, I want to go back to what I'm familiar with and I want to go there. And so I had romanticized America in my little small child head. And and the thing is, is when you live abroad, when you learn history, they're not really focusing on, you know, what happened to the Native Americans, and the indigenous people. That's not a part of our curriculum. So I would didn't learn about most American history until I came back for college. That's when I started well, to actually let's be honest, learn about it. It's not really a part of American curriculum either. Also, that. also, <laughs> also, definitely also that. But it wasn't even like really on my it's like radar. Twelve pages, if that, you know. And 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 it's all completely incorrect. Like it, the way it's presented yeah. is just factually wrong. Um, they really just leave out a lot of crucial. I feel like information. Well, it's whitewashed, right? And, right. you know, it's history from the perspective of the colonizer. Our, our textbooks are not written by Native people, right? So that's a problem. Absolutely. Um, and you have to be able to do a lot of unlearning after you go through that, you know, K through 12 public school education in the U.S., and realize that, oh, wait a minute, there's a lot of perspectives here that have been left out and, you know, they're actually kind of essential because they actually 
call into question the very founding of this country, right? And so, yeah, that needs to, that definitely needs to happen, uh, that, that sort of critical analysis at some point. And I think a lot of people go through it to, certain, to a certain extent during college, right? Because they start to take classes with a more critical lens and, and then they start to, to do a lot of that unpacking and unlearning themselves independently. For me, that, that's when a lot of my activism flourished and, and uh, was certainly inspired, you know, when I was reading Noam Chomsky and Norman Finkelstein and, 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 uh, and Edward Said and, and authors like that. I started to learn about Palestine, which of course I didn't l- really learn about either uh, going through the American high school system. But uh, yeah, I, th- I think people do do that. It just takes some time to, to go through that unlearning process. But it's definitely a process of unlearning and relearning. Oh, and I, and I, till this day, I mean, currently, I am still actively like unlearning and also realizing these, um, I guess I would want to call them maybe coping mechanisms for being a Palestinian living in America and just kind of reacting and responding to experiences that I've had subconsciously. For example, like someone says, oh, where are you from? And we all know that when they're asking me that, that means where the fuck is, where are your parents from? Like, where are you from? Like, you're not from here. Um, so I'm like, you know, I was born in Florida. My parents are from Palestine. And because time after time, I was really never met with anything positive upon saying my parents are from Palestine. I'm Palestinian. I just slowly stopped saying that throughout my early twenties. I would just say I'm from Florida. I'm a Floridian because I almost was just like, I don't want to have to agitate myself because it was upsetting to me. Like I was like, Mm. I don't want to be triggered by their response. And so it was like this weird self-preservation thing that I didn't even realize I was doing. And that's something that only up until recently, I was like, why did I do that for so long? What was the reason for that? And taking the time to really unpack like the reasoning behind why I just didn't feel the need to say it anymore. And I was like, I was basically conditioned to feel shitty every time I said it. So obviously, you know, something makes you feel shitty every time you do it, you're kind of maybe not going to want to do that anymore, which I was telling my sister, I was like, I'm embarrassed about that. She was like, don't be embarrassed. Do you realize it now? And you weren't doing it because you weren't proud. You were doing it because you couldn't really handle it at that time. The wanting to debate random fucking white boys in my undergrad class. Like, I don't want to debate with you, Brad. I don't want to show you Palestine Mm -mm. on a map. Fuck off. Um, So it was really this, this moment that happened very recently where I was like, I really regret ever doing that and will make it a point to now go above and beyond to mention how very Palestinian I am because I should, no one should ever be made to feel that way, essentially. No one should ever be made to feel stressed out for simply saying, I am Palestinian. And that, I believe, is a very shared experience amongst all Palestinians, regardless of where they live, where simply saying, I am Palestinian is never this just easy conversation. No, it's, it's like an anti Semitic war cry. Like, you know, people think that. It- your, your, your existence is immediately politicized because you have mm-hmm. to understand that the entire premise of Zionism and the entire, you know, rhetoric that Israel has sold the world is either that we don't exist or if we do exist, well, we're not really from there. We just came from a bunch of other, you know, places nearby and then we could just go to those places and whatever. 
Or if, well, even if we are from Palestine, well, then we're all just a bunch of very hostile, barbaric terrorists who hate Jewish people. I mean, the entire premise of Zionism and the entire, uh, you know, rhetoric of the state of Israel is officially that, you know, Palestinians either don't exist, you know, Golda Meir said it, that Palestinians don't exist, there's no such thing as a Palestinian, or if we do exist, oh, we're just secretly some Jordanians. That's a very common uh, piece of uh, propaganda from you know the Zionist handbook that has been repeated time and time again. And oh, well, if they accept that we do exist and we're from Palestine, when then well, then we're just a bunch of very hostile, barbaric um, people who you know just inherently hate Jewish people, and uh, we're all anti-Semites. So those are your options. So when you say you're Palestinian. To somebody who doesn't know very much about uh, what's actually going on in Palestine, you are immediately combating and directly rebutting decades and decades of propaganda that have been designed to uh, essentially alienate you, erase you, and make you appear as an enemy for merely existing on your land. So that's why you get these negative reactions from people just from merely saying I'm Palestinian. Well, look, I am Palestinian. That's just a fact. Like my, right. all four of my grandparents were born in Palestine. My parents were born in Palestine. My, you know, right. as far as I know, as far as I can count my lineage, I'm from Palestine. I'm not from anywhere else. And be, you know, before 1948, Palestine was a very real place until this, until the settler colony of Israel established itself on the majority of our land and expelled the majority of our people in 1948 and continues to do the same thing until today. The Nekba, the, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, which began in 1948, continues. And it's an ongoing process of ethnic cleansing, uh, which will not cease until it has accomplished its goals, which are to rid Palestine of Palestinians. And so Palestinians that exist in this world, and we've talked about this before in the Palestine pod, their existence alone is an act of resistance because we're, we are essentially just by existing in the spaces that, that we exist in, by inhabiting those spaces, by saying I'm Palestinian, we're directly rebutting decades of Zionist propaganda that says we don't exist that says that we're inherently hostile people, that says that we aren't from Palestine. Well, I don't have anywhere else that I could be from. And I'm really sorry about that, but that's literally where I'm from. You know, the fact that my great-grandmother was born in Yaffa and now Yaffa's part of Israel, it's not my problem that you you set up a settler colony on top of <laughs> where my great-grandmother was born. That's your problem. But that's where she was from. That's where she's from. <laughs> so... And yeah, and that goes for many millions of other Palestinians, right? Who who are from places, you know, cities and villages which were either completely destroyed, right? Because during the Nakba of 1948, Israel destroyed over 500 Palestinian cities and villages, completely raised them to the ground. In some cases, covered them with trees. And if they didn't raise them to the ground and completely destroyed them, well, then they expelled their inhabitants, and Jewish people moved into their houses. Those Palestinians are from Palestine. And just because those villages don't exist today because they were intentionally destroyed, or just because their house today is inhabited by a settler from Brooklyn, doesn't mean that they're not from Palestine. 
right? The, the clock Absolutely. doesn't start. The clock does not start running when Israel establishes itself on the land of Palestine. Palestine has existed for thousands of years. Palestinians have existed for thousands of years because we are the descendants of all of the people, all of the different civilizations that have been in Palestine for thousands of years. That's who we are. We are the people of the land. We didn't come from anywhere else. We have just been on the land. And we continue to um, be on the land even until today, right? And this is a big problem for them because they thought that they kind of finished the job, right, in 1948, but they weren't able to expel all of us. And even until today, 20% of the population of what is quote unquote Israel is, are still Palestinians who resisted ethnic cleansing and were not expelled during the Nakba. We're all over the place. We're in the West Bank. We're in quote unquote Israel. We're in Gaza. And the reason for that is because we were there to begin with. And, and it's, it's one of those things that, you know, people continue to be surprised by. They're like, wait, your parents were born there. You have family who currently lives there. And the lack of information that has existed throughout my entire life is, I think, a testament to the Zionist regime and just how how thorough they've been with all of these aids from the U.S. and all of these larger countries, Canada, the U.K., and just helping in this erasure of a Palestinian people. But like you said, simply just saying, hey... My parents were born in Palestine. My oldest sister was born in Palestine. My grandparents were born in Palestine. My great-grandparents were born in Palestine. Like generations of my family, you look at a family tree, which my dad's side of the family, he does have a family tree. And they are all from Karatiya, which is a village that was basically violently expelled during the Nakba and no longer is in, in existence. But that doesn't erase the people and the people still exist. And just because the, the village is no longer recognized or doesn't exist or has been, uh, you know, taken over doesn't mean that those people just suddenly vanish and we're not real anymore. Just, you know, we're gone now. And it, it just constantly does. It's always shocking to people. They're like, you still have family there. And I was like, absolutely. And they're like, well, why, why don't they leave? That's a question I feel like I get a lot. Why, why would they leave? Gasoline? Why would Number they one, leave? Why would they leave? Number two, they can't, even if yeah, they did right. want to, even if they wanted to leave, that's not an option for them. So explaining that people are so completely unaware of the blockade on Gaza and don't seem to understand it. And these are intelligent people who I would consider to be very well versed in politics and, and the world. And they are, they're in their knowledge of Palestine or specifically Gaza is so limited. And it's because there is just, you watch the news or if you consume any form of media, any major mainstream mm. media, you're never going to get that information. They will never present that to you. And it's it truly is at this point, you have to take it upon yourself to learn. But also I think that there are these words thrown around when it comes to Palestine, like conflict and it's complicated and there's so much history. And all of these are tactics that are used to prevent people from looking into it by making it seem like this very complex, impossible thing where they're like, it just, you're, you're not going to be able to figure it out. So, so don't even try and just, you know, go look into something else because this is too complicated and you're never going to figure it out. And I think that's one of the Zionists larger tactics as far as 
I guess, suppressing information and preventing people from even inquiring. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's only complicated to the Zionists because they have to go through all these mental loops to try to find a logical sort of uh, angle for their ideology and for their existence, right? But it's not complicated at all if you're Palestinian. If you're Palestinian, you were in a place called Palestine until 1948. And Palestine is what is today known as Gaza, the West Bank, you know, Jerusalem, and Israel. All of that was Palestine until 1948. It's so simple. And we were everywhere. We were all over that land. We had an entire civilization. Look at the book uh, Before Their Diaspora, a Photographic History of the Palestinians. You can see we had soccer teams. We had a you know a, you know we had fully um, integrated railroads that went mm-hmm. from Gaza, for example, to Damascus. My grandfather told me that his father used to take the train from Gaza to Damascus. Right, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, we had an airport. We had mm-hmm. you know we had universities. We had all sorts of different industries that were developed. We were a farming people. We were city people. We were all over the place. And. After the fall of the Ottoman Empire, we were subjected to British colonialism, just like many of the other um, countries in the Middle East, like Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and so on and so forth, right? Britain and France came through and they split up uh, the region. They said, I'll take this, you take this. And Palestine was under British colonialism for some time. And then that was basically transferred over to Zionist colonialism. And the Zionists came from all over Europe. They also took advantage of uh, Jewish Arabs and instrumentalized them uh, so that they could fill the land of Palestine with more and more settlers. And they created their settler colony on top of our land. And they expelled us from our land. Like, it's just that simple. It's not a complicated issue. And settler colonialism has been around for a while, right? We, we know what the model looks like. Um it's the same thing that happened in the in the Americas. It's the same thing that happened, you know, in Canada, Australia, uh, South Africa. It, it, it's, you know, Israel didn't invent anything new. The the only difference is is that it has been successful for some time in resisting this label of settler colonialism um, to describe its activities in Palestine, and I think that the veil is being lifted. Um, and I think more and more people are understanding that the appropriate terminology is not conflict, is not, you know, both sides could just do, you know, change a little bit their behavior and whatever. It's not, oh, um, you know, but Hamas and, you know, but Palestinians need to do this. And if they do this, well, then maybe Israel can, you know, um, take it upon themselves to offer them, you know, whatever it may be. The language is settler colonialism. The language is apartheid. The language is Jewish supremacy. Uh, The language is war crimes, crimes against humanity. That's the language that we should be using. And this is not, you know, just my own opinion of it. As as I mentioned, this is is a, a factual assessment based on analyzing mountains of evidence that not only human rights organizations are in agreement with, but, um, you know, even we had, for example, uh, Nicosi Mandela on the Palestine pod recently. People who have been through apartheid themselves are in agreement with it. 
leading uh, anti-apartheid South Africans are in agreement with it. The Mandela family, Desmond Tutu, um, uh, Malcolm X was a supporter of Palestinians and, and wrote a very strongly worded uh, article against Zionism before uh, he was killed called Zionist Logic, where he totally dismantles the entire ideology. Um, we have supporters in people like Angela Davis, Dr. Angela Davis, Dr. Cornell West, um, Dr. Michelle Alexander, uh, leading Black intellectuals um, and authors. We have allies in people all over the, the third world that resist anti-colonialism, or excuse me, that are resisting colonialism uh, in their own countries. And then when you look on the other hand and you see who Israel has aligned itself with, we know, for example, that Israel funded and armed apartheid South Africa. Well, I mean, it couldn't be clearer. It couldn't be clearer than that to understand like, okay, I probably don't want to ally with the country that armed and funded apartheid South Africa. Right. Israel is active all over Africa funding um, dictators and um, corrupt governments. Israel uh, is close with leaders like Bolsonaro in uh, Brazil and uh, Orban in Hungary, who made some very suspect comments about the Holocaust, super anti-Semitic, but it didn't stop Netanyahu's government from, you know, aligning itself and welcoming Orban to Israel. Um, close with Modi as well, right? These are dictators. Um, close with a bunch of dictators in uh, the Gulf as well, further to the normalization agreements that we saw with Bahrain and the UAE. So do we really want to be supporting a state that is also friends with the UAE and Bahrain, which are two governments that totally suppress all of the freedoms that we would associate with a free society, like the freedom of speech and uh, freedom of the press, right? That's who Israel's friends are. And so for me, it's, it's very clear, right? You see that colonizers and oppressors always align themselves with one another. You know, a lot of the things that we talked about um, during uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and then certainly like in this latest uprising, you know, we started making the connections between the police training programs, between American police officers and, and, and the Israeli army and, 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 and occupation forces and so on and so forth. Colonizers and oppressors align themselves with one another. And so it's very clear. All you have to do is look and see who Israel's close with and who it's been close with historically. And then you'll understand what Israel is and what it's about. Um, it's also, you know, obviously very close with other settler colonies like the U.S. and Canada. And that makes sense because it, it also is a settler colony, right? Um, and then when you compare that to the people and the organizations and the states and, 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 the, and the movements that have shown their solidarity to Palestinians, well, it's very clear who is fighting the liberation struggle and who is fighting the rights-based struggle to simply have their rights enforced under international law. And it's very clear who is fighting to maintain a system of apartheid and settler colonialism and you know codified racism and segregation. And that's Israel, right? 
we're fighting the liberation struggle. They claim to be fighting a liberation struggle. They're not. They're fighting to, to maintain a status quo of apartheid and settler colonialism. And we are fighting to free ourselves from that and to see rights, to have rights, to have, to see the enforcement of our rights under international law. So you made a lot of really excellent points. And I'm really glad that you touched on South Africa, because that's something that I kind of wanted to talk to you a bit about is the parallels between apartheid South Africa and what's happening in Israel, because there is a lot of hesitation i seen, and I'm sure most people have seen, with people describing what is happening in Palestine as apartheid. I think that there are definitely people who have been outspoken about it being apartheid because it is. Um, But what are some of the methods they use or parallels that make it clear that what is happening is in fact apartheid? I think it's important for us to start with the definition of apartheid, because if you don't know what you're even talking about, then how can you write, even understand whether or not Israel is practicing apartheid to begin with? So apartheid basically refers to the implementation and the maintenance of a system of legalized racial segregation, um, where one group is deprived of political and civil rights. Apartheid is a crime against humanity that is punishable under the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. And uh, so it's really important for people to understand that when we're speaking about apartheid, not only are we are we speaking about a crime under international law, but we're essentially speaking about uh, codified racial segregation. It's it's basically segregation, which is segregation on the books, and I think this is a really essential point because it's it's clear that many 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 countries all over the world suffer from systemic racism and and, and issues with racism in their society, but very few countries have that racism codified on the books. And South Africa did. And that's why it was an apartheid state. And so does Israel. And that's why Israel's an apartheid state. And I mean, I can give you plenty of examples, but let's just, you know, start with um, some simple ones. Um, So if you look, for example, at the nation state law that Israel passed in 2018, One of the first things that the nation state law does is it establishes that only Jewish people have the right of self-determination. But that's in a place where even on Israel's own admission, 20% of the people within Israel proper are not Jewish. So what about those people? They don't have the right of self-determination, right? This is a law that exists on Israel's books. I mean, how, how can we be speaking about a democracy when... One of your laws, which essentially ha- like is, is is on the level of a constitutional principle, basically says that eighty percent of the people within the board, the so-called borders of Israel, which by the way, that's another story, but Israel's never actually defined its borders. But what we kind of know to be Israel, only eighty percent of those people have the right to self-determination. Twenty percent of those people don't. And then as for the people that are in the occupied territories, well, they certainly don't have the right to self-determination unless they're a Jewish settler on occupied land. Right. So what we're talking about is, you know, essentially two systems of law or basically laws that discriminate between two groups of people and accord more rights to one group of people than another group of people. Take a look, for example, at the fact that any Jewish person anywhere in this world can immigrate to Israel at any time and receive Israeli citizenship with all of its associated rights. Um, I, for example, cannot move to Yaffa tomorrow, even though my great-grandmother was born in Yaffa and all her ancestry is from there. I'm not allowed to because I'm not Jewish. Um, 
Even though I can trace my lineage on the land, I can't go. But somebody who cannot trace their lineage on the land, but simply uh, identifies as Jewish, can go tomorrow and receive you know, nearly immediate citizenship. Um, there's all sorts of things. Like, for example, what about if those Palestinians that are in the 48 territories want to marry a Palestinian from the West Bank or Gaza? Do they? Do, do, right. do, does their spouse get to come live with them in uh, quote-unquote Israel? N- generally, no. So um, <laughs> basically that 48 Palestinian would have to make the decision to go live in Gaza or the West Bank themselves, but the vice versa could not happen. Well, what about Jewish Israelis who live in illegal settlements? What if somebody um, from 48 wants to go live with their spouse on an illegal settlement? Israel has no problem with this, and it will probably pay them to do so. Because when I was in Palestine, one of the girls that I went with was an Israeli whose family left Israel, and they went to the US because they were not at all okay with what was going on. And she had joined this uh, delegation that I was on that was going essentially to visit the West Bank and 48. And it was a fact-finding delegation. So we were there to meet with organizations and see what things were like on the ground. And she was translating for us the billboards that we were reading on our drive into the West Bank on the Jewish-only roads, because you're allowed to take those if you're an international group, Right. And again, I mean, I'm literally talking about a place where there's roads for Jewish people and there's roads right. for Palestinians, right? I mean, right. could that's literally that's the definition. A, that's the definition of apartheid, right? It's, it's it's wild to me that anyone is even hesitant about it because things such as that just make it abundantly clear. There's right. a side of the road for uh, Israelis and there's a side of the road for Palestinians. Right. And that's called segregation. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so she was she was translating the billboards, and some of the billboards were essentially like the Israeli government enticing Jewish Israelis to move from 48 to settlements and basically telling them like all like the fancy packages they would get, like the cash, you know, wow. bonus and like the, the subsidized housing and the schools and this and that, just trying to entice them to move there, right? Again, these settlements are a war crime. They should not exist. They are illegal under international law. They must be dismantled. And Israel is very brazen in continuing to build more and more settlements on Palestinian land. While at the same time, the international community is like completely, I don't know what the word is, sedated and still talking about a two-state solution. I mean, what are you talking about? That this this is not even a thing. Everybody knows there are there are not there are not two states. Everybody knows there's only one state and there's Right. Only one state, and it's an apartheid state, and some people have rights and other people don't. I encourage everybody to watch the episode of um, the Palestine pod that we did with Nikosi Mandela because he goes really deep into the comparison of the policies by even citing to specific apartheid South Africa segregate, uh, excuse me, apartheid South Africa legislation that um, is very clear when, you know, very clearly shows that some of the same methods that were used in apartheid South Africa to segregate, to keep um, black South Africans in smaller and smaller pieces of land that continue to shrink, right? The Bantu stands. That's kind of what we, we often use that term when we're speaking to the enclaves that the Palestinians live in the West Bank, because they continue to get smaller and smaller. And they resemble uh, what we saw in, in apartheid South Africa. So he goes through a lot of the legislation. He goes through a lot of the methodology, the attempts to restrict, um, the living uh, of Black South Africans on the territory, 
also the the restrictions on uh, movement, uh, the restrictions on uh, economic development, and so on and so forth. And he gives us sort of a, a, a comparison. But he also says that what we see in, Par- in Palestine today is actually worse than apartheid. He says it's worse. And he's written on the subject um, before. He, he has several articles out where he makes a comparison and, and he shows how it actually is worse than what we saw in apartheid South Africa. So I encourage everybody to look at those, look for his articles, but also listen to that episode because it was super enlightening. But I mean, th- there's so many things. I mean, when you just look at Israeli law, there's so many. I mean, I don't even know what to pick from, but definitely like, for example, another thing. Israel says about Palestinians that are in 48, oh, look, they can vote. They can vote. They can vote. But, uh, I mean, this is the same place where Netanyahu, in the last couple of elections, ordered uh, racist ads warning Jewish-Israeli voters that, quote, the Arabs were going to the polls as a means to encourage them to go out and vote because, God forbid, like Palestinians, citizens of Israel vote, right? Um, Palestinians are continually vilified. Just look at what happened um, with this latest uprising. All of the Palestinian businesses were smashed and, uh, you know, destroyed and attacked. We saw literal lynchings in the street of Palestinians by Jewish-Israeli mobs that were organizing themselves on WhatsApp. Um, Palestinian citizens of Israel who call for a boycott of Israel um, may be exposed to lawsuits, uh, according to Israeli policy. Um, it's illegal to even talk about the Nekba in Israel, right? Uh, the, the Nekba law authorizes a finance minister to reduce state funding or uh, support to an institution if it holds an activity that rejects the existence of Israel as a Jewish and democratic state or commemorates Israel's Independence Day as a day of mourning. So that's like super absurd, right? Because if you're a Palestinian in 48, there's almost a 100% chance that members of your own family were expelled at the creation of the state of Israel during the Nekba, Right. So just to even speak about your own family history is something that could trigger negative consequences for you, right? Um, As opposed to Jewish Israelis who don't face any issues for telling their own narrative, right? I'm just barely scratching the surface. Um, And these are like, these are- The of apartheid. Right. And and that's, and that's, it's really important for people to understand. That's whether you speak about Israel's policies vis-a-vis Palestinians within 48 or within the West Bank, or within Gaza. It's apartheid everywhere. It's not just apartheid in the occupied West Bank, which, you know, some liberal Zionists might be willing to accept, right? It's apartheid everywhere. As Beit Salem said, it's a regime of Jewish supremacy from the river to the sea. It's everywhere. It's not just in one limited, you know, physical space. I mean, it's it's definitely something that I believe many are or have not been aware of prior, but are now becoming aware that, wait, this is this is happening all over. And I've mentioned this before. I have spoken to people who thought that Palestine existed and Israel existed. And there was this little thing in between called the Gaza Strip. And that's what everyone was fighting over. But they were under the impression that there were a Palestinian people <laughs> happily living on their Palestinian land. And I was like, would be great, but no, that's not that's not the reality of the situation. The reality is is that every Palestinian living on the ground is being actively oppressed every single day and yeah. is under the threat of ethnic cleansing every single day because they are living under apartheid. So these things that are happening 
are not happening in specific areas or to specific Palestinians. It is happening to all of the Palestinians who live there. And it just varies in severity, I guess. Like, you know what I mean? It varies in severity depending on which physical space you inhabit according, you know, to the colonial system that has been established, which has fragmented us from one another. Because again, before 1948, it was all just Palestine. You could drive a car from Gaza to Jerusalem. You can't do that now. You know, you could drive a car from Yaffa to Ramallah. You maybe can do that now, but you might need a permit depending on, you know, right, who you are and whatever. The point is, is that, again, this goes back to the issue of confusion and the fact that Zionists need to confuse people to make them not really want to even look into this issue, right? Oh, it's too complicated. I'll never understand it. Here's the thing. They also do a lot of projection. So they always say like, Palestinians just want to wipe Israel off the map. Okay, well, that's actually what you have done to us. You literally did that to us. We were Palestine. And then in 1948, you took 78% of Palestine and you called it Israel and you expelled 80% of the Palestinian population, you made us stateless refugees all over the Arab world. Many of us continue to languish in refugee camps in places like Jordan and Syria and Lebanon that were initially constructed for temporary use. That's when you took 78% of Palestine. You continue to take more and more of Palestine until today, right? So in 1967, you occupy what the 22% that is remaining of Palestine that you didn't get the first time around, which is called the West Bank now and Gaza. And you start moving settlers, Jewish settlers, onto this land, which is not your land, which is illegal under international law for you to be doing under the Fourth Geneva Conventions, and you continue to do it anyway. And you're using money that you get from the United States to build these settlements, whether it be donations officially from, you know, uh, excuse me, donations from U.S. individuals like the Christian Zionist John Hagee and his people and, and all of the totally radical, insane Christian Zionists that exist in America or the actual U.S. government. And you're building settlements and you're taking more land and you're demolishing more homes and you're, you know, you're pushing Palestinians into smaller and smaller enclaves. And then at some point, the state does this PR move where they're like, oh, we're going to be withdrawing from Gaza. This is a peace move. And then what they actually do is they move all of the settlers that they withdrew from Gaza to settlements in the West Bank, which we know is um, a piece of land that Israel uh, is more interested in uh, than Gaza. And then what did Israel do? For the years since it's got, excuse me, starting over. And then what did Israel do in the years since it's Gaza, so-called Gaza withdrawal? Well, it started to attack Gaza from the sky. Military assaults using its F-16s and F-35s and all sorts of advanced American weaponry, making Gaza a testing ground for American weapons, which of course they never would have done if Jewish Israelis uh, continued to live in Gaza on settlements. Uh, they only do that now because that they they know that there's no risk in uh, killing a Jewish Israeli. That's also why they don't use, uh, you know, bombs and, and drones and shelling on on the West Bank. Rather, they'll use like grenades and and stun, uh, you know, stun grenades and sound bombs. And they'll also just use sniper attacks. Um, all of the Palestinian youth that have been killed in the West Bank in the last few months are killed either with a bullet to the head or a bullet to the chest. And uh, so the colonial regime has different ways of basically carrying out violence against the native population. It all depends on the physical space that you inhabit um, in this entire 
uh, map of uh, apartheid Israel. You've spoken about a lot of topics in recent weeks, and you have mentioned several times is the Burnett brothers and what is happening with them, what's happened to them, what is currently happening to them, and um, just kind of shed some light on how Israel is actively, you know, kidnapping Palestinians, imprisoning them with no actual legal reasons and continues to do these things. Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, the reason I talk a lot about the Burnat brothers is because I know them personally, but their story is is not a unique story. Their story is a story that happens to Palestinians every day in the occupied West Bank. Um, and they are simply just some of the latest victims of this form of colonial violence. Uh, so basically, the Bornat family lives in the occupied village of Bilain in the West Bank. And uh, on May 17th and May 24th, the Israeli occupation forces raided the Bornat family home. Um, on May 17th, they beat up uh, the the son named Muhammad, and they arrested the son named Abdul Khaliq. These are boys that are 19, 20 years old. Uh, they eventually came back on May 24th to arrest Muhammad. Um, we found out that they were being held in the notorious Meskubiya prison, which is located in Jerusalem and which is notorious for the torture that Israel uh, carries out against Palestinians there. Um, we also know that the boys have been deprived uh, from contact with attorneys and their parents. We also know that they didn't actually even know why they were being held. They didn't know why they were kidnapped. They didn't know why their house was raided. And by the way, when the house was raided, it was totally destroyed from the inside. The Israeli occupation forces came through. They destroyed every screen in the house. They turned everything upside down. They pulled out all of the contents of all of the drawers in the entire house. They did the same for the refrigerator and everything in the kitchen. They found nothing. So they ended up taking the boys, shoving them into the back of these military vehicles, and, as I said, taking them to this torture center um, where they were being held, and they continue to be held, actually, until today. It's now over a month since the boys have first been kidnapped from their homes. Their families are, of course, as you can imagine, completely terrified and can't sleep, can't eat, trying to just get any information that they can about their boys, who, um, until now, have, have not been charged with any crime. Um, but what I think is interesting to note about their case is that Israel regularly holds Palestinians without charge while they carry out quote unquote investigations, right? Um, and the family has since been informed that, um, that Israel is accusing them of throwing stones and Molotov cocktails and burning a bus inside the settlement, which is basically attached to the occupied village of Bilain called Modin Elite. Um, the settlement essentially was built on stolen land from Bilain. And the villagers have been protesting it for years and years and years and weekly protests every Fridays, um, uh, every Friday uh, for years now. And uh, the villagers succeeded in getting some of their land back, but much of their land uh, was still taken and used to build this illegal Jewish settlement. Um, the boys are being accused now of these quote-unquote crimes, 
And uh, there's no evidence or proof of them having done any of these things. And so Israel continues to hold them while it carries out its quote-unquote investigations. We know that during the time that they've been held, because of uh, a quick conversation that Abdul Khaliq, one of the boys, had with his attorney, he was allowed to speak to attorney for about two minutes through a screen, that he's being tortured and that he's being um, essentially tortured into confessing to a crime that he did not commit. He told his attorney that he's being held in, in the ghost chair position for about 15 hours a day. And he told his attorney that Israel, uh, the, the occupation forces are trying to get him to sign a confession in Hebrew without the presence of a lawyer, of course, in a language that he does not understand, all of which is super illegal under international law and violates all of the principles of due process, substantive and procedural that we would expect from a democratic country. Um, and this is just what Israel does. And, you know, Abdul Khaliq and Muhammad are not the first and they certainly won't be the last. In fact, in the village of Bil'ain itself, numerous youth were picked up between May and June. Uh, and I've spoken to their father, and he's told me that he really believes that this is an attempt to collectively punish the village of Bil'ain for its years of resistance against the construction of the apartheid wall, against uh, the theft of their land for the expansion uh, of uh, the nearby settlement, and that Israel is able to do this and get away with it uh, because the world's attention may be turned towards, you know, East Jerusalem, maybe turned towards Gaza, but isn't necessarily turned to the dozens and dozens of kidnappings and killings, which may be taking place in the occupied West Bank, because in comparison, it's not as violent as what's going on elsewhere. But that's the thing about this colonial apparatus. It, it doesn't ever stop working. <laughs> um, it's a constant, uh, it's a constant pressure um, on anyone who is Palestinian uh, living anywhere in the land of historic Palestine, whether they live in Gaza or whether they live in 48 or whether they live in the occupied West Bank or Jerusalem. There is a constant threat um, that, and a daily experience with the rules and regulations of uh, colonialism, where you're allowed to go, where you're allowed, you know, where you're not allowed to go, what road you can travel on, what road you can't travel on, how you might be arrested, what rights you you have if you are arrested, and what rights you won't have because of who you are, right? Um, whether your house will be demolished or it won't, whether your olive trees will be uprooted or not, whether your land will be taken to expand a settlement or not, uh, whether a settler will move into your house or not. Uh, these are all aspects of daily reality for Palestinians that Palestinians have been living with for decades. And uh, that's just the reality. I mean, this is not the first time that somebody from the Burnat family is, is, is arrested by the occupation forces. Um, their eldest brother has been shot before and has needed multiple surgeries on his leg. Uh, and this is just their daily reality, you know? And, uh, Right now, we're calling on the immediate release of the Bornath brothers and all of the other youth that were kidnapped from Bilain. And uh, for anyone who's listening to this, feel free to check out my Bilain highlight uh, on Instagram, where I provide some instructions about how you can reach out to your local representatives and encourage them to speak out and call for their immediate release because they are Palestinian youth living on occupied land who have the right to resist that colonial occupation under international law who in any event have not been charged with anything to begin with, 
um, while their you know occupier continues to look for and fabricate and 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 mount together some sort of evidence right against them, which they haven't been able to bring forth in the now six weeks that they've been held, they've been tortured. That's illegal. They've been denied access to their lawyers. That's also illegal. Um, and everybody should have a problem with this. And so um, we're calling on their immediate release and we're calling on the immediate release of all Palestinian prisoners, uh, especially those that are being held without charge. Absolutely. And uh, I, I really encourage you all to follow Laura for a myriad of reasons, but one of which being that she is constantly sharing how we can help. And I think that, you know, there there are a lot of things that we can do that, you know, aren't that time consuming or that difficult to do. And and I think that one of those things is calling your representative, emailing them, get finding ways to use the privileges that you have to help people who, like you're saying, that these this isn't unique to the Burnett brothers. This is a reoccurring, very real reality of the Palestinians living on the ground where they are being held and detained for no real reason and are forced into signing confessions to things that they have not done in languages that they do not understand. And I, for one, can say that I don't know any Palestinians who have family that live on the ground who have not experienced this. Every Palestinian knows someone who was illegally detained under completely, just for no reason, essentially. And Israel will continue to do these things until there is real change. And although it might not seem like, you know, we can solve everything at once, there are actionable things that we can do. And, you know, I think that at this point, we should focus on what we can do as opposed to what we cannot do and the things that are out of our control and really hone in on what we can do, how we can help. And um, I really, really think that, you know, just generally posting on social media, sharing all of these things, being informed, having conversations, these are ways in which we can fight for the Palestinian liberation. Because I think there are so many things that are completely out of our control, but what we can control is using our voice and utilizing whatever privileges or abilities that we have to amplify the voices of Palestinian people who cannot speak for themselves. And it's just as simple as that. And I know that sometimes social media can seem like this very frivolous thing, but at this point it is such a resource and it is an absolute threat to Zionism. And I think that, you know, the proof is in the censorship that we all are experiencing. And I mean, even throughout this recording, we were cut off for no apparent reason, which has never <laughs> happened to me before. And I promise you when I'm talking about I dumb swear, shit, I'm blacklisted. it doesn't get cut off. It doesn't get cut off. So, um, Laura, I mean, as much as I would love to ask you like 7,000 other questions, I know that you have other things to do. So I want to say thank you so much for coming on and for you know, enlightening us all, myself included, and constantly sharing so many resources and so much important factual information and, and, you know, the, how this is illegal, essentially, and it's not based on your feelings or opinions. These are just based on laws that are in place for this exact reason that are not being reinforced. And um, obviously, you have a podcast, people can follow you on Instagram, plug all of the things. And I'm, I'm also going to have it in the episode description, but where can people find you? How can people learn more from you? Yeah, for sure. So 
first and foremost at Gazan Girl, G-A-Z-A-N-G-I-R-L on Instagram, at the Gazan Girl on Twitter, because Gazan Girl was taken by a girl who doesn't tweet. <laughs> I'm trying so to get rude. trying so to get rude. that. I don't know if I will. Um, check out our episodes on YouTube. Um, also on all of the podcast apps. Mainly, our listeners are listening to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Our podcast is called the Palestine Pod. And check out our website, PalestinePod.com, where we provide for every episode a reading list. So we'll put books that are relevant to the theme that we discussed for that particular episode. We'll also include articles and videos and. Um, all sorts of sources that um, basically back up the claims that were made during that episode. So if you hear us say something and you're like, wait, where does that come from? Just go on our website. You'll find everything you need right there. And you can always reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. We love to hear from the people who listen to us. And it's been a really great, we've gotten a lot of really great feedback and, um, and listeners and always, you can also also follow us on uh, Instagram at the Palestine pod. So yeah, that's where we are. Uh, there's a lot of places we're not. We're not on Facebook. We're barely on Twitter, <laughs> but you know, it's a lot to manage. So we're just that's what we're going with for now, and it, it, it seems to be doing okay. You guys are doing a lot, and I also highly encourage you if you're on iTunes or if you have an iPhone, go on the podcast app and rate and review the Palestine Pod because. The more you rate and review it, the more people who will see it and the more people who will learn. And that is how we can all do our part. Um, as always, you could follow the podcast on Instagram at Arab American Psycho. Um, and like I said, I'm going to have the Palestine pod and Laura's social media platforms linked in the episode description. And, you know, you can follow me on Instagram at Nori, where I am just a combination of you know palestinian rage and narcissism as always guys <laughs> <laughs> floss your teeth wear your sunscreen don't be a fucking asshole and let's free palestine <laughs>